Are you looking for a new math curriculum? CTC Math specializes in providing online video tutorials that take a multi-sensory approach to learning, creative graphics and animation synchronized with the friendly voice of internationally acclaimed teacher Pat Murray makes learning math easy and effective. Favorably reviewed and Kathy Duffy's 103 top picks and the Old Schoolhouse Crew review. The lessons are short and concise to help your child break down concepts and appreciate math in a whole new way. Visit ctcmath.com today to start your free trial. That's ctcmath.com. Okay, we are so worked up right now. Are we not, Melissa? (laughs) We are. I'm all hot and bothered. (laughs) I think so, because here's the funny thing about Brave Writer. The way that we teach writing comes from like another world, it feels like, compared to what we learn about in, you know, grad school or what we hear about in all these other sort of educator spaces. So let me just put my cards on the table. I'm not trained in the field of education. I don't have a master's in any of the fields that most people would associate with teaching writing, like composition. I have degrees in history and theology, but I'm a professional writer who was raised around professional writing. And back when I first conceived of Brave Writer, what seemed like was missing in the world of writing for adults and children was love. Was love. You're a professional writer. What do you think of that assertion? I think it's perfect. I think it is absolutely correct. The thing that drew me to you back in the the early days of our getting to know each other, just as people online, and then your materials. And and I'm going to jump, Julie, and say that I am extremely picky about what kind of writing materials I will use with my kids. Almost everything I had looked at up until I encountered your stuff I immediately sent back or put in a drawer and never used again because none of it approached writing the way that I knew that writing worked, that writing happened for me as a professor. I mean, by the time, by that that time, I had already published many, many novels. And I had worked in publishing. I worked in uh, at Random House Children's Books and HarperCollins Children's Books. So I had seen a lot of books go through all of the stages and the stages of writing from idea to finished book, are very different uh, in the publishing world than they are taught or than any of the materials before Brave Writer had laid them out. And you were using this model. I remember sitting with one of my friends who knew that I worked in the field of editing and publishing and um, and in ghostwriting in particular. And she said, I don't understand why this program I'm using isn't working for my child. And I didn't have a program. I was pulling off my shelf. People like Peter Elbow, William Zinser, Anne Lamott. I was just using their (laughs) writings to help me teach my kids to write. So I said, well, show me this program. I had my oldest child was in fourth grade at the time. And I won't name it, but it was in a three ring binder like so many of them were in the late 90s. And I opened it up and there was a first lesson on how to write a paragraph. And there was this nice sample paragraph at the top of the page. And I read the paragraph and I said to her, have you read this paragraph? And she's like, yeah. 
I said, did you like it? She goes, what do you mean? I said, well, when you read it, did you think to yourself, gosh, I wish there was a second paragraph? She goes, oh, uh, no, I, I can't even remember what it said. And I just took the cover <laughs> of this notebook and I just closed it. And I said, why would you use a model paragraph that was so lifeless and dull, you don't even remember it, let alone care if there was more of that writing? Why would that be the model for writing for your children? And that's what I mean when I say love, right? Like we know what good writing is. It's the books we want to keep reading. Bad writing, books we stop reading. <laughs> right, right. If you can put it down, then there's a gap there between what the writer wanted to accomplish and what the writer is accomplishing. But I have read things written by, four, you know, five-year-olds dictated or narrated to me um, where sure it, it didn't have lots of the mechanics down pat yet, but they had me hooked. <laughs> you know, they were telling a story that had heat in it that I cared about. It's like the way Linda Berry the artist, um, if you've read her book, Syllabus, and all of her wonderful books, Linda Berry is so obsessed with the art of four-year-olds because she's like, no, there is life in their drawings. Oh my gosh. The word life is the other key term here. If we're talking about the impulse to write, like if I think all the way back to 13,000 years ago to the caves in France, that sister Wendy Beckett loves to talk about on her story of painting videos. For those of you who don't know what those are, I'll put a link in the show notes to the YouTube series. But she walks into these caves. And of course, people are communicating on cave walls by painting these gorgeous illustrations of a hunt. And I think what compelled us to do art, to create hieroglyphs, to create an alphabet, what compelled us to take what was oral and put it on a cave wall or put it on papyrus? And it has to be that it was so valuable. I wanted to save it and share it with someone yes. else. Yes, capturing it. The, the thrill when you discover that what mark making is and that, that you can do it and that some marks will last forever. I think that's a very infectious thing because... As human animals, we're aware of our own mortality. So the idea that I could create something that outlasts me resonates so deeply in the human soul. And so if we're going to teach, you know, a five-year-old who doesn't know how to move a pencil yet, doesn't know how to read, that there's value in putting in the very hard, tedious work of holding a pencil, making squiggles, figuring out which direction the B and the D go or how to create that awkward cursive R or whatever, they've got to have a stake in it. And I think early on, what I said to this friend who had first asked me about writing, I said, let's just take a step back. Why do we read? Why do we even read? Why do we write? Why would writing even feel valuable? And one of the first things I love to ask parents, because all of them already understand this principle, and I'll tell you how I know it. When you have a baby and your baby gets to the point where it's their first word, they say mama or they say banana or whatever, the first impulse of the adult is to write it down, to jot it down in the baby book and date it. And then they share that fact in the record, the written record with that child when they're old enough to understand that was their first word, or they share it with a grandparent. 
But there is this, this craving we have because we've come to value the printed word so much to record what is original and preserve it for a reader. Yes. Yes. And all of the ways that that kind of jotting it down happens. We're doing it constantly for ourselves and for our kids from the time they're, well, like you said, from their first utterances, they say, you know, they're three years old and they say something funny and you repeat it to your mom on the phone. Or if you're me, you go write a blog post about it. (laughs) Well, yes. I mean, that's one of the most enjoyable aspects of your blog is the huge record it is of the oral language development of your kids, right? Like capturing on their behalf, their delightful expressions, their sense of humor, their um, insight, right? Because young children have insight. Sometimes we forget that. The goal isn't to wait until they're 16 when they have fluent reading and writing skills to capture their thoughts. I remember reading, I think it was Patricia Schneider in her book, Writing Alone and with Others, where she says that you want to right at every stage of your development from the time you're a little child all the way into your 70s because it's a slightly different writing voice every stage of the journey. What you have to say at 20 is very different than what you'll have to say at 40. What you have to say at age four, very different than age eight. And so if we're waiting for a child to fluently read before we allow them to experience having their thoughts recorded, they don't get to preserve that writing voice. One of the things that frustrated me when I would look at any kind of language arts materials when my older children were little and we were, you know, embarking on the homeschooling adventure was that to me, it seemed like they were muddling all these different skills and processes up together in one. I never like to see um, kids who are just learning like how to do handwriting physically assigned things like make up a story about something. Because to me, oh, like I need to know what I'm going to say or or have some idea of where I'm going um, before I can start diving into putting it into sentences. And then if you're adding this layer of also my hand isn't doing what I want it to do, um, or I don't know how to spell the words, like there's a lot of different concrete pieces to the whole like generative writing package. And I think a lot of those pieces get thrown at kids in one big heap. So when I saw the, you know, I had, I have writer's jungle in the white binder. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's the old version of growing brave writers for those of you who are new to us. But yes, my original manual was called the writer's jungle. Go ahead. I have an OG writer's jungle. You do. And I, I got. I was getting the very first arrows, and um, I was like, "Oh, this woman gets it. She understands that kids have bigger stories to tell than their hands are able to keep up with." It really. It made me remember how the best present my parents ever gave me as a teenager was an electric typewriter. Um, for the first time in my life, I finished. A story. I had started one million stories over the course of my life and I had never finished one. And then when I graduated from high school and they gave me embrace yourself, because like how cool was I at a Commodore 128? <laughs> <laughs> um 
the printer was my electric typewriter. We just rigged up a cable. Um, and I could backspace, delete, paste. I don't know if you even could. You had to move the cursor and, you know, retype yes. it. You couldn't do like copy paste quite yet then in 1986. Um, but I mean, for the first time, my my fingers were keeping up with my brain. Mm. And I don't think I would ever have become a novelist if I had had to write everything out by hand to get to the finish line. Mm. Uh, I mean, I couldn't even do it with a short story, let alone a novel. I think a lot of early writing programs are expecting that you're going to be able to like learn all those parts at the same time. And I think that's a real frustration for kids. I, I do too. When they're now, excited about... Yes, go ahead. When they're excited. When, when they're excited about a story, when they've got an idea and they're acting it out and you write it down for them and they see those words on paper, like that lights a fire. They're so excited to... Like now they have documentation of their own imagination and I've, I don't know, in my experience, it always led to more and more and more. So what I have noticed, and I, I really like how you articulated that, what I have wanted is for a child to experience the gestalt, the, uh, the aha moment that writing lives inside me. It's not a bunch of words I'm hunting and pecking out of the thin air to match whatever is in the imagination of the adult. It's that the life of a writer already inhabits my body. I need a secretary, somebody. It's either going to be me or somebody else. If I don't have those skills yet, I'm going to grab a secretary. Hopefully it's going to be a parent, you know, we're a homeschool uh, community. So I'm picturing this free, unsolicited, unsolicited act of spontaneous speech and a parent grabbing a sheet of paper, the back of an envelope and jotting down what they hear. And then the act subsequent is reading that back at a later time to the family, maybe at the dinner table, where suddenly the child sees the en entire journey completed. Now, that child eventually has to learn to use the pencil. But if we only start with the pencil, what we end up saying to the child is, your thoughts are not worthy of the page until you've mastered transcription skills. And that's that's just a fundamental belief difference I have with some other ideas. I feel like it is critical for the child to first have the sense of pride and joy of being read so that when they go to do that hard work, they are bolstered by a vision. And it's not just something they have to do as a gatekeeper to their better thinking. Right. The physical skills of mark making and mastering those skills, which happens over, it can be a long timeline for some kids. Um, that's right. That's different than idea making and sentence making. And if I had to have technical proficiency in the the hands-on, the physical part of everything before I started to learn about it or to experiment with it. I, you know, I, as a, what, what was I, about 45, decided I wanted to learn to draw. So I started taking drawing classes and, you know, I made some pretty wretched marks. If I was told that I had to produce a painting by the end of, of that course, that first course, instead of getting to fill up a sketchbook with 
irrecognizable, unrecognizable <laughs> scribbles. <laughs> I would have stopped. I would have stopped, but I didn't stop because I was allowed to learn just how to how to how to make my hand and my eyes kind of work in tandem together, which is not easy. No, it it certainly isn't. In fact, I sort of think of this practice of jotting down similar to reading aloud. Like we would never say, don't read aloud until your child can read, right? We're going to read to them, allow them to enjoy the power of story, to discover that there is something happening between the parent and this book. There is a transaction there that the child doesn't have yet a skill set. But through the invitation of story, then when we go to teach phonics, which is a challenging skill to master, the child has some motivation because there is this delightful outcome on the other side. Could that child only ever listen to audible books and only rely on the parent? Sure. But that isn't usually what happens. We at a certain point pivot and we say, now's the time. This is your time. And we'll keep both things going so you can still enjoy stories, but you're going to get up to speed and know that skill. I feel the same way about writing. I feel like in the school system, there is so much attention on mechanics because they are discrete skills. They are the things that can be measured, they can be corrected, they can be graded. But what is the cost of that emphasis? It's the sense of joy of self-expression. I resonate with that so much because that is... When I write a novel, the very last thing that happens is it goes to copy editing. Mm, exactly. That person at the end of this could be a year, two year long process that I have been through this journey with the book. The very last stage of that process is somebody arguing with me about comics. <laughs> if I had to start off with the comics, argument, I would never get anywhere. I, in fact, when I, so my book, The Prairie Thief, when, when I was like in the first fire of zeal uh, with that book, I had written a couple of chapters and I sent them off to a friend of mine and she wrote back and she said, oh, this looks really promising. Hey, I noticed that you had a typo here and I would put a comma there. And it's just like that fire went it was like two weeks before I wrote another word because wow. I, it just, it just squelched, squelched all my enthusiasm. I was not there yet. Now I love copy editing. When I do get to that stage in a book, I love it. It's fun, but that's because I have already wrestled with plot and character and language. And it's been through a structural edit with my editor where she's just, you know, we're talking about the whole shape of the book or like in Nervous Girl, that first draft, my editor noticed, she was like, you know, the grandfather sort of disappears halfway through the book, Lissa. Um, so either you need to bring him back in or get rid of him. And poor grandpa, <laughs> like I wrote him out of the book on the sec on the next draft. <laughs> Amazing. <That's> just, <laughs> gave all his lines to grandma. Um, she was, you know, I was having fun with her character. I had a good handle on it. Um, and that's the structural edit. And then I turn in that pass and then I get the line edit. Um, and that's going to be more sort of like, now we're really drilling down into the, I, could you, could you describe this, you know, in more, in more detail or, um, 
it's not the whole global shape of the book. Now we're going deep. And then, then, <laughs> and that could be two or three passes. Then it will finally go to copy editing. And now we're going to look at the mechanics. After the copy editor's done, that's not even the final proofreading stage. Yeah. We're all going to read the book like three more times in galleys. First pass galleys, second pass galleys, you know, like so many places to catch just mechanics errors. Um, you don't start with that. You finish with that. Yes. And the of first... course, by then, by the time you're writing a book, you have basic written fluency. So for children... <laughs> who, who don't even know what punctuation is. I always like to say punctuation is actually another language system, just like mathematical notation is. A lot of us just sort of assume that a child is learning what a comma is by being a reader, but they're not. They're actually skipping the comma. They're skipping the period. They have fluent oral language that recognizes the intonation and sentence ending patterns. So as they're reading, they can actually supply what that punctuation feels like without even noticing the marks on the page. So when we're teaching kids to physically write their own thoughts, we're starting with scratch marks, with putting consonants where they think they hear them. Uh, I remember Katrin took just the most amazing journey. She <laughs> would use a pencil in a notebook and I still have all of her examples where it was just, you know, uh, sort of a running line across the scribbly looking line across the page. And we'll never forget, she was like four years old and she said, no one can read this. It's private, you know, and no one could because it <laughs> also wasn't writing yet. But it was the movement and the thought in her own mind coordinated. As she got older and we started teaching reading, little phonetic signals showed up. Suddenly there were scattered consonants throughout her attempts to record her own thoughts. But at the same time, I was jotting down her actual cogent thoughts in English. So she would also have those. And in some cases, both of those were on the same page. I would write what she told me above and she would write below in her own version of English. Over time, they started to look more like words. They were invented spellings. They were the phonetic arrangements she could manage based on how far she had gotten in her reading understanding. And when she finally learned to read, and she's given me permission to share this, she was over nine years old. She was not young. Um, her handwriting was really proficient. Her mechanics had to catch up, however, to her actual reading skills. But when they did, oh my gosh, the combustion was incredible because she already had been using the pencil in coordination with her brain. And once she got the fluency of reading under her belt, it was pretty natural for her. But even then, we still had to talk about commas and punctuation and dialogue quotes. We use copywork and dictation for those. And it it's just amazing how that journey kind of comes together. Now, she was my youngest, and I learned a lot on the first four kids. Um, and I discovered that it is a journey with each child, right? There is a unique path for each kid in that writing process. Absolutely. Absolutely. Some of my, my kids enjoyed the mark making so much that that was their doorway to writing. Um, some of my kids, it was all about the storytelling and the the having their thoughts captured on paper. But but no matter for all of those kids, all six of them, <laughs> it's a pretty big field of study. Um, yes, the that piece 
there was this consistent piece that was them being excited to tell me something and me writing it down. Um, You know, and the younger ones would see me writing down narrations for their older siblings, and they would absolutely want in on that. And then the that physical practice of writing, we would use writing that already existed in the world yes. to learn how to do that. Yeah. Um, just like art students study, you know, how to draw the old masters. It, that's part of the process, seeing how they... So for, for us, copy work or dictation provided that sort of like safe space. You're not worrying about the thinking. It's not, you're not generating ideas. You're writing out words. And of course, in the course of it, you're also figuring out where some commas go and it's reinforcing some spelling, but it, you're getting the fine motor piece down without that pressure of, I don't know what word comes next. Yeah, without the cognitive load, right? So that when you start learning how to transcribe your own thoughts, we use a practice called free writing in Brave Writer, and we give an extensive treatment of that inside growing Brave Writers and and weeks and weeks and weeks of practice. And the reason for that is when we're first exploring how to physically transcribe our own thoughts, the cognitive load of ideas combined with fluency and spelling and punctuation is a challenge. It's difficult mm-hmm. to do both well. So sometimes your brain is going to prioritize the great word like cornucopia, and you're just going <laughs> to write it down with a K because you want to get that word down on the page and you can't remember how to spell it. And then other times you're going to give more attention to the punctuation or spelling and the sentence might be kind of weak, like roller coasters are great instead of giving a lot of detail. And one of the things that I've noticed in editing and working with student writing for 23 years is that kids provide you with a treasure map no matter how they write. So their first pass at original writing may not seem as rich linguistically as an oral narration that you transcribed because of this juggling act that the brain is going through, trying to prioritize, does the D or the B go left or right? Or I know how to spell this word, so I'm going to pick it, even though I know a better word, but I don't know how to spell it, so I'm going to ignore it. Like that's the thoughts that aren't spoken that are going on. So if we allow for all that, revision is the process of going back and reading the map. Oh, a roller coaster is great. Tell me more about great. Let's get more detail now that you're not under the pressure to write it down. Let's jot those ideas down and start weaving them into the original. So for me, writing is so much like it's this sort of very rich editor-writer journey together. It's not so much leaving a child alone or just having them transcribe wooden thoughts. Oh, gosh. You just I've got two things that just popped into my head from what you're saying. One is that... When I do school visits, I always bring one of my edited manuscripts with me and pass pages around the room. And then I have kids call out, like, like read what the editor said or what the copy editor wrote in the margin that I should change. And let's compare it to how it ended up in the final book. And kids love that. They get so excited because for some of them, it is the first time that it really dawns on them that 
even, you know, professional writers don't write perfectly the mm. first time. Mm. Um, that it goes through a process and maybe sometimes they make mistakes. Maybe I spelled something wrong or the copy editor thought my punctuation was off or something or the, you know, or the editor was asking for a, a better adjective. Right. Right. Um, and so I think it's reassuring to kids to find out that that actually is the writing process. It's not brain to perfect copy. But the other thing that I remembered suddenly as you were speaking was that I noticed when my kids were little, the difference in length between an oral narration and a written narration when they were very young. And that's because if they had to write it, they were tiring out more quickly. They wanted to get to the end of that thing as soon as possible. And if I would be the one to transcribe it for them, well, then they would load it up with all this wonderful detail. Both of those experiences were valuable to them. Yes, right. And I, I remember when my oldest went to college um, and she was working on this paper and she was a, she's, was an excellent writer by that point. Um, but she was having a lot of trouble with this paper. And I said, well, Kate, just tell it to me. Tell me what your argument is. And I was writing it down. We we're like on the phone with each other. <laughs> I was writing it down and I, you know, I slacked it to her and I said, okay, that's what you just said to me. Write that. And she was like, oh my gosh, mom. Let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. <laughs> I keep getting asked, where do I start, Julie? What do I start with, with Brave Writer? You know, the best answer I can give you is this. If you're at the point where your child can read and handwrite, what you want to do is use my writing manual called Growing Brave Writers. It really takes you soup to nuts from making marks on the page all the way to editing a final draft of any paper your child writes. Whether your child is a reluctant writer or someone who enjoys writing, Growing Brave Writers is the place to start. Use discount code GBWPOD10, the number 10, GBWPOD10 to get 10% off when you order. Oh my gosh, that literally happened to me in grad school. I I really? called, yes, I called one of my professors because I was so writing blocked. I was really intimidated. I had this company, I was teaching the essay and I thought, oh my gosh, this is my first graduate school paper. What if I don't get an A? <laughs> Am I a fraud? And so I completely, I completely freaked myself out. I could not face putting any marks on the page because what if it turned out badly? So I called my professor and she was really cute. She said, why don't you just write about how frustrated and worried you are about this <laughs> paper? Why don't you just write about the fraud feeling that you have and just get all that out and then just write anything that comes to your mind, anything that comes to your mind about this topic. And so literally I wrote 10 pages and I didn't use a single word in the final paper, but it was this like action of taking the risk of getting it out of my body. And I feel like that is partly what we're talking about here. When we commit to writing, we are exposing our insides. Mm -hmm. And if the first thing that people notice about our insides is that we're doing it wrong, whatever that is, we're less willing to expose them again. 
Now, should the child learn how to hold a pencil, manage it, transcribe their own thoughts? Yes. Can you just keep jotting down their thoughts for them and they never learn that? Sure. If you're that kind of parent, you could always prevent them from ever learning it. But what we've noticed with Brave Rider families over the decades is this, that when you start from a foundation of valuing the human being and the writing voice that lives inside, it makes the work more meaningful and you can take it at a pace the child can handle. And we've designed all of our programs with that pace in mind for the sake of the child, you know, to use Charlotte Mason's language for the children's sake, not for right. the sake of education, but for that actual unique human being who has stamina to build up, who needs tons of repetition and practice, who needs support. But you know what? I run marathons because I get a medal at the end. I do not run 26 miles just for the heck of it. I actually <laughs> know there's something I value at the end of it. And I think that's what kids have to see at the beginning, that there is something worthy of all that effort. And it's the valuable insight and storytelling that they provide that makes all this effort worthwhile. Right, which gets it back to that love and the life piece. You're, you're, you're valuing, you're cherishing that spark within them that is expressive. And you're showing them that it has value. So, Melissa, this brings us to a perfect transition point. What about chat GPT? <laughs> <laughs> this is the artificial intelligence that's going to replace our children's precious voices. Or is it? What do you think? For those who don't know what I'm talking about, can you give us a definition of what chat GPT is? So ChatGPT is an AI technology for writing. It's it's a very, very sophisticated version of the kind of chatbots that we're already using in sort of customer service experiences where you say, you know, they'll say, they'll, <laughs> what is the problem? And you tell them what the problem is. And they spit out some text that um, may or may not, with a case of <laughs> the customer service chatbots, answer your question. Um, so it's a natural language processing tool driven by AI technology. And it is designed in a way that lets you have sort of human-like conversations with this AI text generator so that you can ask it a question and it will answer with some text. And people, so it's brand, it's, it's, ChatGPT, um, I think it's just since November yes. of last year. It's yes. Just, it's 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 out in the world for a couple of months. People are already using it in a number of ways, lots and lots of different uses. Um, some I'm seeing that that seem very positive, some that just make the writer in me want to run screaming out. Like I finally found it. I'm such an early adopter with every new technology, but this one, I'm like, no. <laughs> and yet, and yet also, yes, just depending on what I'm using it for. <laughs> you want to know it's funny, Melissa, when I first heard it come out, it sort of struck terror in me, not because I was worried that I would lose a job or anything like that. It was more just 
that I take such pleasure in the unique voice of each individual writer. And I was so afraid that we were going to run into this homogenization or you'll just get text from chat GPT and edit it and it won't really represent you or your own thinking. Um, But then uh, we do this solstice kind of practice every year with my family where you provide each person with a homemade gift. And my family is very wordy and very techy. And I thought, you know what? It would be really fun to do epic ballads written by chat GPT for each of my (laughs) kids. And so the first one that I did was so magical to me. I was so startled by how natural it actually sounded. I thought, wait a minute, this is a little unnerving, actually. (laughs) Um, Had you fed it like information about the kid, yes. You, you so I would give prompts? it. I would give it a tiny little bit, like the one that I did for my daughter and her new husband. Um, I put in that they met on their first day of college, that they both have curly hair, that they just got married in Los Angeles, that they have a dog named Rico, that they love to dance. I talked about their jobs, and I just popped that in, and this is what I got back. I I called it Ballad of the Curly-Headed because they both have curly hair. Um, Katrin and Coleman, two hearts so true, met on the first day of college, it's true. Together they've been for eight whole years. Love has only grown, bringing them joy and cheer. At their marvelous wedding in LA, they said their vows in a beautiful way. Like that, right? With Rico the dog by their side, they've made a home in LA with pride, baking, cooking, and drinking good coffee. Their love for each other grows strong and hearty. (laughs) You know, it's just... (laughs) So when I first read them, I was sort of like delighted. The more, you know, we did five. The more I read each one, the more I'm like, this is the worst writing ever. Like I went from being (laughs) totally stunned to totally like, gosh, this is corny stuff. This is Hallmark stuff. This is bad poetry. What did you discover when you were playing with it? Uh, very similar. It a lot depended on what I was feeding it. I I thought, oh, I'm going to ask it about title homeschooling. Oh, um, and it gave me like a serviceable three sentence definition of title homeschooling. It was interesting. I said, who, um, whose concept is title homeschooling? Oh, it had no idea. Um, Oh, wow. (laughs) For those who don't know what we're talking about, go back one episode where Melissa was talking about title, T-I-D-A-L, title homeschooling. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. So it was really funny to see like whatever um, text on the web that it is sifting through to find information to spit back at me, it certainly wasn't anything I wrote. <laughs> Melissa Wiley, nowhere on chat GPT's radar at all. Um, <laughs> so I I could see that a lot has to, a lot comes down to how skilled you are at feeding it questions or prompts mm. and how um, how much information is already on the internet about those topics, which which raises the question, and this is where it gets to be deeply unsettling, um, and and also for artists with with digital AI generated art, you run into this territory of well, the reason that it can do what it does, the reason these tools can do what they do, 
is because they're using what we have already put out there. It's appropriative. Um, yes, that's true. Appropriative is a perfect word. I liked uh, both of us listened to the Ezra Klein podcast show on mm-hmm. this topic. And I loved how Ezra had said that he had a mix of wonder and revulsion as he approached yes. it. And I thought that's the perfect word pair because that's exactly how I feel about it. Right. There are some cases where I can see it how useful a tool it will be. And I think it's inevitable. We will be using this tool in these ways. Um, I I sent you a tweet that I came across last night, um, Julie, um, from a writer that I think very highly of. And he said, okay, I think Google <laughs> is who should be the most afraid of ChatGPT because, and he showed screenshots of, he had asked it, um, how do you spatchcock a chicken? right? Which I think is a way of cutting and preparing the chicken for a certain type of of cooking. And Google turns up a list of results where you're going to go to a whole bunch of different sort of food blogs or recipe sites. And you probably have to wade through a story about the person's, Mm. you know, grandmother before you get to the instructions. Um, (laughs) And it's also, right, it's a lot of sifting, a lot of sifting. Yes. Whereas ChatGPT gave him steps one through six to do the job. And he I was mean, like, that's, oh. That's incredible. I, I know I was watching Shalene Johnson, who's a pretty well-known fitness guru and uh, online entrepreneur. And she was feeding into it. Give me a menu and exercise regimen for a person who wants to be on this kind of a diet. This person weighs this much. These are the things, you know, weight training and put it in a table. And suddenly it's just auto-populating like a chicken dinner and then dumbbells at this rate. And I mean, it, it, you know, she said it'll be great for people who are fitness coaches, but I thought, well, once the word's out, wouldn't I just supply my own information and skip the fitness coach? Did you have that thought, Melissa? That was exactly my thought. I was like, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) You just undercut your own entire whole business. Now everybody who follows you knows they don't have to hire you. Completely. And part of what I think is interesting then about this whole technology, I usually, like you, I'm an early adopter and I'm a very quick embracer and promoter of technology. What this seems to portend is both incredible power. You know, one of my staff members who runs our online classes, she said, I see it as an opportunity for mentor techs creating some rough copy for people who really struggle with that initial burst to start to have something to mold and to play with and to move around and to review and to edit and to research. So I thought that was a very generous interpretation, but I I liked it. But then versus true misinformation and the volume of misinformation that can be created because chat GPT does not vet what it offers you. It just acts as a crawling tool to collect whatever's out there. So if there's a lot of misinformation on a topic, it's just going to gather it and put it in nice paragraphs for you, right? Yes, yes. And um, there. so one of the other things that people are using it for is to write code or to find bugs in their code. Mm. And I know that there's... Um, Wow. I don't... A platform, Stack Overflow. I'm not a coder, so I don't you know, know exactly. But... I know that Stack Overflow had to sort of put the kibosh on anybody um, using chat GPT generated code 
because people were starting to mess with it and feed it information that allowed it to write bad code that could break your website. Wow. Um, so already it, it's, it's run up against this misinformation problem. Um, and definitely that Ezra Klein podcast um, hit on that to a great extent of the capability that it has because where is it scooping its information from? Right. And who's vetting and, it? And how do you vet right. it? You know, I was talking with uh, with my boyfriend, he's a lawyer, about all of this. And I said, you know, it's the scale of misinformation, the volume that's going to be difficult. He's like, you mean like the whole internet? And I started laughing because the internet is huge and it is rife with both true information and misinformation, which just, you know, right. without doing an a over, you know, overly big promotion of my own work. But that's why raising critical thinkers is so important. If we come from a model of learning that says there is one source of truth, and once you find it, you don't have to look over your shoulder, that day is long past. I mean, I don't know if it ever existed, but it's definitely gone now. Learning how to ask the kinds of appropriate questions that help you to be suspicious or skeptical in a healthy way, not doubting everything for its own sake, but actually being curious, where's the information from? Who said it? How do we know if they're reliable? What kinds of checks and balances were a part of this process of arriving at this data? That stuff matters. It really does. If you're using chat GPT prompt or answers as a springboard for your research, I can see it being useful. I've seen some interesting educational models where um, somebody will, will put in, okay, I'm writing a paper about such and such. And here's the main argument that I'm making. What might someone who disagrees with me say? Mm. And then... And then they, you know, very quickly get to read some dissenting viewpoints. Mm. Well, the next step, and I think it's going to be critical that we are teaching this to our kids because they're going to live in a world that these tools exist. And That's so right. they're going to need to know how to do it. The next step would be, okay, so are any of those arguments that you want to learn more about and research and use to shore up your own or to debunk your own position? Mm. It, it's going to require even more, uh, we're going to need more tools to yearn, learn how to use the tools. So for our families who are at the beginning of this writing journey or right in the middle of it or have teenagers get ready for college, what do you think a good guidance is around something like an AI tool for writing? How should they play with it? Should they be suspicious of it? You did a lot of research to get ready for this conversation. <laughs> what conclusions have you drawn? Where I am right now is that I would want to treat it as a, an adventure that we were going on together. We're going to explore it together um, and see if we can arrive together at an understanding of some places where it's genuinely useful and some places where what the writing that it produces doesn't have that spark, that life, like you mm. were talking about mm. with the poems um, and places where it's presenting information as fact, but who, you know, is, is it verified? And if it's 
who is it borrowing from? Mm. Who is it stealing from? You mm. know, like in some cases, and you see this very, very much with AI generated art. Mm. Um, you can go, I saw uh, somebody the other day put in a prompt of, um, uh, in the style of Vincent Van Gogh, draw somebody receiving an Oscar. Oh, wow. That's such a good prompt. And yeah, it was a great prompt. And that, I mean, that right there, right? Like the playfulness of the prompting opens up possibilities for us as parents and educators to just generate ideas to think about. Um, but, okay, Van Gogh's work is in the public domain. Um, yes, right. But, it, but you could ask it to do the same thing for working artists today whose work will be assimilated by the tool and who will not be compensated for their labor. And it's also going to, oh, I'm sorry, Julie, but I did, I thought of this one other uh, really interesting area to watch for, for us is that yes. um, a lot of the content that we read on the internet, more and more and more of it, I think will start to be, to be generated by various types of AI text technology. Um, back in the day, Scott had a gig writing um, articles about music for the AARP website um, back when we were too young for AARP. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the articles that always did the best would be like like lists, list style, you know, the 10 best songs to listen to on a road trip to Southern California. Um, that kind of content for which he used to be paid and helped keep a roof over our heads. I mean, ChatGPT is going to be spitting out content like that. Um, so it will oh, put some Lisa, types of writers out of work. Out of business. I mean, literally the first thing I thought of when I heard of it was, oh my gosh, writers now know what truck drivers feel, right? Because if we have <laughs> self-driving trucks and I felt yes. that way, I thought, oh yeah, okay. So self-driving trucks are going to have drivers that sit basically in the passenger seat and supervise. And I thought that's a little bit what writing's going to be like. They're going to like generate all this text and then writers are going to turn into editors more than original writers. I was seeing a bunch of people online in the entrepreneur space saying things like, I just put in all the information I have about my product. And then I said, write sales copy. And I got 10 emails written, you know, in 10 minutes. But I just started laughing because I thought, I don't want to read those emails. I already know no. what they're going to sound like because I know what marketing copy sounds like in a general manner. So is it going to have that personalization? You know, as we see the rise in AI and in these technological tools, I find it fascinating that the generations behind me are equally invested in retro technologies. They're buying record Absolutely. players and record albums and they're embroidering. And I have a friend who has a mending business and she's like literally mending clothes and she's in her 30s. This is a generation that has been divorced from some of those hands-on tactile experiences because of so many technological advances in the last three decades. And so I'm imagining that maybe paper and pen is going to come back. I mean, I already think <laughs> it has on some level, but do you think that's true, Lissa? I do think that's true. I mean, people started making their own beer and look at how we all needed to make sourdough yes. in 2020. Um, there is that joy of creation of doing it yourself. And I do think 
there is starting to be that sort of response to the always online lifestyle. Yes. Um, and pe- and younger uh, generations, you know, deliberately detaching from it or deciding what parts of their life are not going to happen online at all. Um, That's really true. I think that, I think, I mean, give everybody a couple of years of that bland AI generated marketing copy <laughs> and anybody, any human who writes something with a little zing to it, it it's going to be appealing. They'll stand out. Yeah. That's right. Well, this has been awesome. I kind of want to put a bow on the whole subject, which is basically this. When we're talking about writing, we're not only talking about transcription. We're talking about the vibrant life of a human being. Even chat GPT is drawing from writing that existed based on human beings who wrote it. So there is a vibrancy to communication and writing using the tools of writing, help us capture that and preserve it for readers. And we want our kids to have all those experiences, the reading, the mechanics of writing, the self-expression of writing, and eventually the forms of writing. And because of wonderful people like Melissa, I didn't even say this on our last show. She writes for us. She writes the quills. She (laughs) writes the dart. They are the Dart is our best-selling product, and it's no small surprise because Lissa is such a creative and inventive writer. No chat GPT there. And uh, <laughs> and all of our programs are designed to put you in touch both with the aliveness of writing and the practical skills of writing. Oh, Lissa, any final words from you? This was a really fun topic for me to dig my teeth into, both just thinking through what what was it about Brave Writer that really I sparked with and connected with so early on um, that led to me like actually loving to write for the company as well. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. I, I don't think there's any other writing program on the market that I could write for. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's so great. We love it. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Hey everyone, Natalie from the Brave Writer team here again with another five-star review. Today's reviewer is Dishwasher2000. My homeschool cheerleader is Julie Bogart. I love Julie's encouragement. There is not a better homeschooling podcast to help discouraged moms find their way through the daily drudgery of schooling to a place of joy and learning. Thanks, Brave Writer. Today's episode was produced by Nova Media with support from team members Jeanette Hall and Natalie Miele. I'm Julie Bogart, author of The Brave Learner and Raising Critical Thinkers. I'm also the founder of BraveWriter.com, an innovative approach to writing instruction. You've been listening to The Brave Writer Podcast. Until next time, keep going, think well, I'm rooting for you.